Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Two Crickets and a Thorn Tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Arma, joined today by the other half of your hosts. Gabriel Krauser. So, heavy events in the world today, uh, and for the past couple of days, and we will do our best to talk about them, um, perhaps with uh, injecting a little bit of our spirit where we can, uh, hmm. to lighten them up. Gabriel? Uh, you wanted me to start with something in particular. Do you still want me to start with that very particular thing? Yes. Okay. So there's a YouTuber I've been following for a while. It's a very silly, silly comedy channel. Um, it's uh, called Life of Boris. And it is a Slavic guy. He intentionally doesn't say where he's from. Um, he hides his face. He's very mysterious. He has even gone to sort of conferences and things covered up and dressed in an Adidas tracksuit and an Ushanka Russian hat over his head. Um, I know he lives in Estonia, but he says he wasn't born there, um, or at least that he's not Estonian. So I think he might be a Russian Estonian. Anyway, and his entire YouTube channel is about the joys of the kind of lower class gopnik stereotype of slavic culture it's all about eating borscht soup drinking vodka uh upgrading your larder the the old sort of soviet type of car playing slavic video games of which there are actually a surprising amount uh, eastern europe and the slavic countries have been producing some of the world's greatest video games for the last couple oh, of years so good the Witcher, the Stalker series, which is Ukrainian. The Witcher is Polish. Um, there have been some good ones from Russia as well, like uh, what's, what's that one called? Um, Pathologic. Uh, Pathologic, yes. Pathologic 1 and 2. Uh, and also one I'm f fond of, which is called Ostalagi, which is made by a company called Kremlin Games, who are no longer able to release the expansion to their game that I was looking forward to buying because of the economic sanctions that are being imposed on Russia. So... You know, that's that's how the greatest war in Europe in decades is affecting me personally. Not a huge amount, but <laughs> yeah, some people I have it worse. But there is my little slice there. And uh, anyway, so this Boris guy, uh, his channel is just really fun. And it's kind of, you know, on this show, we've criticized pan-Slavism quite a lot, um, particularly with relation to the First World War. But if there was a positive version of pan-Slavic identity, it's this guy's channel. It's just so fun and silly and filled with kind of love and humor, and it's just goofy. Now, why am I talking yeah. about him? The other day on YouTube, uh, he uploaded a video. It just said, uh, I think the title was something like, I'm ashamed. And in the video, he said, I'm ashamed. This, I did not want this to happen. I don't comment on politics. I try to stay away from it. I'm, it's like oil and water. Um, my channel is not about that. It's about fun. But what's happened now between Ukraine and Russia has basically broken my heart. It's awful. Um, Russian and Belarusian game developers, I'm not interested in any of your video games anymore. Please stop contacting me. And then he ends the video by quoting the famous uh, phrase that's alleged to have been said by some troops on, a, on, a, uh, on an island, which is uh, Russian warship, fuck off as the final words of his video and that i guess kind of summarizes the sort of cultural moment we're in um gabriel yeah your 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 thoughts on on this kind of thing yeah i think it does that's why i, I it's sort of we are living through this moment where 
there a very clear line has been drawn um and there's two different sides and that is as a result of a very clear line being crossed and in a way i think that there's a lot of gloomy stuff to cover and and not to always cover in a gloomy way um but but you know to start at one of the least in pla important places but <laughs> like quite a pertinent one i suppose right uh, you and i but I'll, i i got this wrong I, you know i think the last episode of yeah, we, well we both got this wrong yeah we both got this wrong the last episode we did was recorded on the monday before the thursday um when the uh the sort of attack on on uh Kiev, on ukrainian uh the capital and the second city kharkiv and so on we on the monday before that we were saying look um it's um, it seems like the the tension is ratcheting down um uh, reports of russian troops stepping away from the border uh are being backed up by evidence i my line was that you know the the, the thing to follow from the beginning has been the russian parliament's um vote to recognize the people's republics of donetsk and luransk and that vote went through on february 15th february 16th was supposed to be the big invasion day according to us and uk intelligence and when and when those things lined up like that, I thought, okay, this this is a very hairy time. But then after that, when things were ratcheting down, I thought there won't be an invasion. Instead, the Russians are going to use the the new mandate that they have. They get to step back because they're like, what we've what although it's kind of humiliating to step back, um, on the flip side, it shows a good grace and a and a, a good common sense and a good wisdom. Right, and it would it would hurt the credibility of all the Western intelligence agencies. Then it would hurt their credibility, and they'd say, "But you know what's changed? Is that now we have a democratic mandate to respect the independence of the People's Republics of Donetsk, Donetsk and Lugansk. None of you guys have anything like that. The Ukrainians have never allowed them to have a proper vote, um, not since they've swore to do so by you know the the winter of March, twenty fifteen at the latest." Um, and uh they broke that promise and and uh so what we're calling for now is that we've stepped back and we've had a bit of a vote to respect these people that you allow them to have a vote um i thought that would be their play and that if they didn't get what they wanted um they would invade next winter because i thought the moment had passed so i was wrong um a few other people that are wrong uh a lot of people are wrong. I, I thought there were I, two I just want to say, watch the invasion. Yes, exactly. Uh, and I must say that despite the fact that I'm not even vaguely close to a military expert, uh, and I've also never served in a military or been anywhere close to one, um, it does seem like that may have been kind of true, that the Russians did launch an invasion without perhaps the troops necessarily to back it up, considering the resistance they're facing. Uh which perhaps explains why they've had to slow down some of their attacks over the past few days. Um, I know in the last 24 hours, there's been very little advance, at least in the north, by Russian troops. And that perhaps suggests that they had to bring up reinforcements, um, thinking that their invasion was going to be 
a bit easier than it was. Um, it's turning out to be quite difficult. Yeah. Okay. So here, so he has it. He has it. He has my first difficult point. I do think that. I mean, that's a very. It's a very common line coming out of U.S. intelligence, and uh, and sort of being said. So you've given the sophisticated version. The the simple version is, <laughs> you know, some guy in the White House or the Pentagon said that the that the Russians are having a much tougher time than they expected, and everyone on Deutsche Welt or CNN or BBC. All of the sort of state-sponsored media around the world, ha ha, ha um, says says the same point. It's not clear to me um, because it requires a comparison. It requires knowing what the Russian plans were uh, to say that things aren't going as well as they planned. Um, I don't know that that anyone really has those plans in fine detail. So, like U.S. intelligence services got it right that there was that there was a, a strike. You know, there was plans to invade. They got it wrong that February 16th was going to be the day that that happened. I mean, they, they said very clearly it was going to be on that day. So if you're getting it wrong by over a week, um, well, it's also it would possible. surprise me if you also get it wrong about sort of some elements of what the details of the plan were. Right. That's the first part of it. The second part, sorry, go ahead. It's, it's, it's also possible, of course, that the plan was changed or delayed a bit to reconsider once... The Russians realized that this intelligence was available. So maybe they did have a plan to evade on the 16th. They said, okay, no, wait. If they're talking about it, then we need to readjust here because there's something obviously wrong. Maybe so. I, I agree. Um, but then, you know, it, it introduces that element of doubt. Right. No, the I other get your problem point. is, I think, and, and I think the main thing is, and I find myself doing this, right? I mean, I was pretty gloomy. Uh, look, uh, my my sweet lady, uh, you know, has family on both sides of this war, um, uh, mainly on the Russian side, but on both sides, and it's it's a very gloomy, gloomy time. Um, and she was very upset. The first day, she didn't smile about anything. On the second day, I showed her that picture of Naledi Pandor promising that South Africans were going to restore sort of peace and order. Um, and then, <laughs> South Africa to the rescue, <laughs> and then and then and then my darling laughed. <laughs> and I was, As should we I all? Was so happy to see that the ANC had brought joy back into the world with its promise to to sort this mess out. <laughs> um, so I do, but but the I think in terms of one of the things that I've kind of amused myself by thinking was like, insofar as this is a test match, you know, I was thinking of this as like a five day test match. Um, and I, and I had the feeling that if the, if the Russians could, could, could take, could shock and awe, uh, to use that old American doctrine phrase, if they could, if they could, um, uh, neutralize U Ukraine's army and, uh, get a gun to its president's head, at a negotiating table and get him to sign a peace deal in five days, then they would win the, the test match. Um, yeah, 100%. Seemed... I agree with that. But, that's, but, but then I wondered to myself, okay, we hit day six. It's clearly not a test match. I also try and think, you know, the six-day war, the Israelis managed to really achieve a decisive victory in six days. But part of the reason it's called the six-day war is because of how, how bizarrely uncommon that is. Um, if you think of the most decisive, you know, military invasion in a while, it was the American invasion of Iraq, 
and it took America with the mightiest army in the world three weeks to take right. Baghdad. But um, here's here's where the, the we don't know twenty one days, and we're on day six, right. and that was like at least seven thousand, probably twelve thousand civilian casualties, and tens or you know scores of thousands of of, of military casualties. So by that standard, um, the Russians are actually going super quickly. Uh, well, there are. It is, it is worth noting the that staff, they have managed to envelop. You know, they, they've managed to build the the corridor between yeah, a land bridge Crimea between Crimea and and, and Donbass and surround Mariupol, which seems to be the last real city standing there. Once they've taken that, they will have achieved, I think, the you know the, of the second tier military objectives, the main one. Um, and in terms of what's going on around Kiev. You know the the sixty kilometer long convoy going along. I don't know, Nick, but you you must push back against me on this if you think I'm getting it wrong. We were talking off air about a couple of days ago about the first footage showing up of really long Russian convoys, and uh, military actual military experts are saying this doesn't look like good doctrine because you know with all those you know at the time you know like two hundred uh, vehicles in a row or whatever. It wouldn't take a lot. 2,000, they estimate. I'm talking about a couple of days ago, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, You know, uh, unless Russia controls the sky, um, that those those targets can easily be taken out from the sky. And even if it does control the sky, those targets can be taken out from the ground, from, from, you know, little partisans jumping out from behind a bush, launching an RPG or 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 a javelin, uh, a proper anti-tank missile or whatever, and then buggering off. Um, it's a really kind of static, uh, uh, soft target way of going about things. Um, and that was conjoined with claims from the Ukrainian military um, not being questioned in mainstream sort of English media uh, to the effect that their air force has not been neutralized, that Russia does not have aerial supremacy, and that they don't actually have full control, um, well, even of the airport. I'm going to push back on both of those things. That one, seem to which be which is that? Let me, let me. Okay, please do. But let me just sort of explain. the The point is that seeing those long corridors of of you know forty kilometers stretch of of Russian um, vehicles and armored vehicles going through, so far seeming to be undisrupted, does suggest to me. Insofar as the question is, the starting question was like is the Russian army not doing as well as it expected or whatever. If they're able to do that, I infer that they have full control of the land around there and full control of the sky over there. Because if they had only even partial control of either, um, then they would have paid a tremendously heavy price, one that would be visible from from outer space. And so far, when it comes to outer space, I've only seen... Uh, like I think one or two, you know, a handful of successful yeah, drones been about from Turkish, three or four Turkish drones, yeah. and those haven't been on those main convoy corridors. They've been sort of little filigrees. Right. So the the claims about lack of Russian air superiority were not just made by the Ukrainians. Um, in fact, I don't know if the Ukrainians explicitly made those claims themselves. It's not from those claims have been made not by a neutral party by any means. They've been made by British and U.S. intelligence, um, who I think do have at least a little bit of an interest in at least appearing to be credible. Um, and there does seem to still be some evidence of some Ukrainian aircraft maybe operating. Uh, although 
as I haven't seen any any new footage of Ukrainian aircraft in the last 24 hours. So maybe, indeed, the Russians have claimed air superiority. And in fact, the Ministry of Defense of Russia only announced that they had achieved air superiority, I think, yesterday, sometime, in the yesterday morning. So I think it's credible that at least for the first few days they didn't achieve air superiority, which is... Uh, which is not what military analysts expected. Military analysts expected the Russians to have wiped out the Ukrainian Air Force in its totality within the first six, seven, eight hours. Uh, the, and talking which about would the six be, day Which war, would be very six-day war, yes. Right. Uh, Although it is very war, lucky in the case of the six-day war. I mean, there's yeah, the and, and the, Israelis, the Israelis did it. They, they had a smaller air force, and so did the Egyptians. Um, but they wiped out the entire Egyptian Air Force in something like two hours it was, yeah, it was, I was crazy i was like i was going to exaggerate and say six minutes but it really was like astonishingly yeah, like, quick but it, it, it was, was also it was, there was also a bit of luck on their side there right yeah um, no right um it was it was a well-planned operation and also a bit of luck out of that as for this convoy uh i think your analysis there is, is probably correct um it's possible that the russians don't necessarily have total air superiority over the country but they might have local air superiority on that corridor so maybe they well put... and let's also just just to you know use a, a, a technical phrase that's not very uh, serious but you know th there's there's always that distinction between superiority and supremacy where superiority right. means there might be a challenger now and then and supremacy means you really are there's unchallenged no, yeah. so so the americans um, typically yeah. establish supremacy very quickly i mean in the Iraq war, they probably established it before any troops had landed anywhere close to Iraq. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's that they very likely may have local superiority there. They may recognizing. Well, the, I'm saying they must have local supremacy above that corridor because right, otherwise, right. like any any evidence, like that corridor is not being challenged. Insofar as it's not being challenged, it's not a contest. Um, right. Um, they also, they, they, it's also possible that the Ukrainians don't have the capacity to counterattack um, because they've been too hard hit, or maybe they're still preparing one. Um, if the Russians control most of the roads, it would take them quite a while to have to move around because, you know, obviously they can't move quickly, not having control of the roads. Uh, the point I think a lot of military analysts made about that column, though, is that an army doesn't, you know, you don't want your army to be a bit slapkat. And this was the kind of criticism it's made. It's like, you don't, uh, you don't, unless you're, unless there's a huge tactical advantage uh, in the gamble, you don't ever do anything where you might get punished for it if you can help it, has been the, the, the claim I've seen from analysts. So they say a column like this is, uh, evidence basically of a kind of slap cut attitude of of maybe you know uh, uh, not managing the logistics properly, which means that there's a backup of of vehicles instead of them being deployed into positions. So you know they're waiting for that one to move, or they're waiting for some fuel from here, or they're waiting for orders from this one, which causes them to back up. Uh, so the, the the claim here is that this shows that you know there's definitely at least not a flawless moving. Um, system in the Russian forces. And I think I think that's reasonable. There is there is, I think, some evidence that the Russians have had. They appear in the early days to have tried quite light assaults on a lot of cities. 
Yes. Um, they went in. Little sabotage groups, little airdrops into... Unsupported aircraft things, which is the kind of battle plan one would expect if you expect the enemy to fold quite quickly, right? It's sort of like a modern Blitzkrieg. You attack everywhere all at once in a whole bunch of places, um, key enemy points. You capture key pieces of, of, of infrastructure. You demoralize the enemy and the enemy government collapses. And then the main force of troops comes in to just roll over the resistance that remains and secure the countryside. Uh, well, the main force actually just rolls in for the for the cameras. Right, uh, whatever, right? They, that they is, I mean, so I, I, also, I also wonder about that. Um, here's one reason I wonder. I think the greatest mystery, I think most people, you know, uh, I, I think the greatest mystery is where is the main Ukrainian army? Yes, we do not know. Part of part of part of how things looked to Nick and I when we were talking on Friday, uh, sort of the day or one or two days after the uh, sort of mainstream invasion had begun, was that it looked like what the Russians wanted to do was uh, drive straight up from the south and straight down from the north uh, to basically hmm? in the east. Well, no, one, one idea is to go straight up from the south and straight down right. from the north so that the main Ukraine, so that you you you, you hold a, a, a plumb line running through Ukraine and to the east of that would be the main Ukrainian army. Right. And to the right. west of that would be Kiev. And that Lviv if you could separate the yeah. capital from and Lviv, if you could separate the capital from the main body of the army, um, that's a tactical, you know, battle victory kind of thing, strategic yeah, victory. Because then you then you can surround a choke it of supplies and either you can destroy the whole thing or it will give up. Um, this yeah, is, you can example, you've got a better chance of a low. So I mean, I think I should just say that anyone who's listening to this podcast, um, I I have heard um, many people say things like Putin doesn't care how many civilians he kills. Um, I disagree, not because I think that Putin is a, a cuddly, sympathetic, um, deeply moral chap, uh, but rather because I think the strategic interests lie in Russia minimizing civilian, ca civilian casualties. I could be wrong in terms of, I mean, I'm right in terms of that is their primary interest. I could be wrong in terms of whether he cares because... Um, it's, on, on my view, he shouldn't have invaded in the first place if he really understood his strategic interests. I think this whole thing is a, is, is a, is a, is a strategic, uh, is a miscalculation. So I don't, I don't want to put too much weight on that. But so far, just in, in, insofar as you put on the thought, just trying it out, even just for the sake of argument, that the Russians are trying to minimize casualties of civilians, if you could separate the main Ukrainian army from the capital, that would also give you a better chance of, of taking the capital or putting pressure on the president in a way that has less vision casualties. Right. So that is not clearly not what they try to do. Instead, what they try to do, and I is is this is lots of airdrops and little mini strikes and sabotage groups. And it might be that 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 those have a dual function, which is partly to um, see if the enemy is just a, a Potemkin village, it's just a paper tiger, something so easy that you could blow it right. over like a, like a bad wolf. You could blow the house down. Um, but also, as, as, an, as, a, as an almost suicidal form of reconnaissance, and it, it, also given that we don't know how the casualties are, we don't know how suicidal this is, but you sort of you drop these little groups in 
Um, and basically, you test the extent to which the, the main Ukrainian army. Um, you you right, can't so that, find, find out that, that analysis, but, but especially, yeah. but especially, what is going on in the cities? How are they dealing with the city defense? Are they um, are they mixing residential areas with with military defense? Are they going to put missile launches? Right, figure out where their troops are in basically. in residential buildings. Uh, are they not going to do that? Where where are they? Where are their troops lying? And in the meanwhile, and this seemed to be a military objective that they succeeded in, neutralize the airports, which yeah. then ties back into the the main objective well, of, of also not capture the your, airports so you can yeah. bring more stuff in. Right, it's like a bridgehead. So I think that analysis might work for some of the uh, the, the lighter columns of of armored vehicles that we've seen, but it doesn't work so much for the airdrops, and there's a number of reasons for that. Yeah, tell me. Uh, the airdrops tend to be better quality troops because they tend to be, to do that kind of stuff, you know, you have to practice quite a lot. And so ideally what you want to do is you you come in, you airdrop your troops, they secure some ground objective, let's say in this case, an airport. Um, there was an airport north of Kiev where there was a big battle over it, precisely this. And then you hold the line at that airport until ground forces arrive to support you. And then you've basically shattered the enemy defenses because you've captured this this key strategic objective very quickly and now your forces just push them over and they're toast it does seem like in the early days um the russians tried to do this in a couple of places and it didn't really work and the most was i can't remember i think it's hostomel airport or something northwest yes. of kiev yeah yes uh they came in helicopter attack very quick um, came over from the border from Belarus. They landed troops. These were the first sort of Russian troops near Kiev that were captured on Western TV. Um, uh, the, what's yeah. it called? The CNN talked to them. <laughs> it was like a very surreal moment because CNN cameras were wandering around thinking that these were Ukrainian troops. They went up to them and they said, no, no, we're Russians. <laughs> and so uh, I, that was, I think, part of the reason why in the first few hours, everyone was like, you know, Ukraine is toast. Right. Um, yes. So I think people, ordinary people's expectations were set by that. 100%. Uh, and that's actually helped the Ukrainians in the long run because when it turned out that these didn't that seem to succeed, could, yes. right, then yes. the, 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 the pendulum swung yes. completely the other way. Yes. It's like, no, these um, guys were rebuffed. They took back the airports. But but that, yeah. that does look like what happened is these guys landed. They were probably pretty high quality troops, although you never know because the Russians do hold their clouds quite close to their chest on a lot of their military organization. And uh, they were, at least on the first day, wiped out. It wasn't until like a day or two later that Russian troops actually arrived and en masse sort of pushed the Ukrainians back from that airport. So that to me does suggest that they had an operational plan that was probably expecting Ukraine to be a lot more like the Afghan government. When the Afghan government realized that its air force was no longer able to operate properly uh, uh, once the Americans had withdrawn, all of the logistic support. Uh, there were a couple of lost battles. There were a couple of uh, um, skirmishes out in the provinces. Like uh, there was a famous Afghan commando who was killed. And once that happened, everyone basically just started looking for the exits. And so I think it, it I, we won't know for sure, obviously, until the fog of war is lifted. But I think it is plausible to say, based on the evidence we've seen so far, that there was a Russian plan to go in quick, go in hard, go in in a whole bunch of places 
and the Ukrainian government, you know, it's got lots of kleptocrats and, and that sort of sort in it. They'll just flee to their, you know, yachts in the Mediterranean and the army will have to give up after a few weeks because it's just okay, so, so demoralized. So, so I think I think this conversation is good for my brain because it's helping me understand why I am so reluctant to go along with that analysis. Right. Um, and it's not um, – uh, I, I, here's what I think is true. I think it's true that uh, I'm supposing, I'm inferring from the evidence that we're seeing, just the public evidence, that there were Russian military planners who said, we're going to try this thing out, we're going to do these airdrops, we're going to have lightly uh, armored uh, cavalry effectively sort of uh, race in and see if that they if they can meet up, hold the strategic objectives, and establish a land corridor. Therefore, going all the way from Belarus to the sort of northern border of Kiev, and basically do that in a day. Huge strategic objective. The next day, you get uh, uh, some significant reinforcements, and then you can envelop the city. Um, and in fact, just doing that might be enough to 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 set panic. Destroy enemy morale. Yeah, and that'll be great. Okay, and it doesn't go that way. These, the, the the airport is taken, then it's taken back. Um, that that can't be the plan A. No one's plan A is you take the airport and then you, and then it gets taken back. But what my supposition is, my further interpretation is that someone said, "Look, this might work. It might not work. What happens if it doesn't work?" And that the what happens if it doesn't work would have been built in to uh, the 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 further scenario planning that preceded the invasion. Now, here's, here's the background point that I'm trying to make. Consider this, just as a possibility. Consider the possibility that so far, everything has fallen within the broader scope of Russian military planning. So they're not in the best outcome scenario. Like if they had four scenarios, super duper, pretty good. Okay, this is okay. And like, okay, this is quite, this is like the worst case scenario uh, that we can plan to manage for. Uh, we're very far away from that fourth category. We're still in sort of the B, B plus universe. And, and, and I think this is true militarily. Um, uh, and I'm not an expert, but this is, this is the sense that I'm getting just from sort of some basic background. And, and, and I think it might even be true in terms of the financial war that's been uh, launched as well. Uh, in other words, I'm I, I'm quite confident that some of the uh, Russian, some of the top brass, and some in the Kremlin would have considered it crazy for Russia to be kicked out of SWIFT. Um, uh, you know, Princeton professor Harold James says this is, said it would be crazy the day before. He said it could never happen because it would substantially increase the risk of a, of a 2008 style global financial crisis in the West. So the West would never be stupid enough to create that risk. It's happened. So there would have been some people who said it won't happen and it has happened, a more extreme response. For all that, I don't think that they are totally surprised by it as a whole, that they would have planned for this contingency. Now, why does this matter? It matters because my, my projection, insofar as that's of anyone's interest, is that I think this is going to be sort of like Iraq, like Syria, but worse, right? I mean, it's going to be another case of like 
whatever happens in the opening phases, uh, if if Russia tries to hold on to Ukraine in a sort of guerrilla war style situation, it is just it's going to be an unmitigated disaster. So, and so let me. That's a scenario that I don't believe they can possibly have planned for. So I'm trying to hold on to the like this is still this is not perfect for them, but it's not that bad. To hold on to the contrast because I think in a week or two or in a month it's going to be like they did not see it coming how bad things are now. And I, so let, let, let me offer a slightly alternative version that probably ends up in exactly the same place as what you just said, which is that um, they go in, they expect an easy victory, and they expect the West to give up pretty quickly. Um, and when I say the West, I mean the free world. I mean Japan, South Korea, Taiwan included. I know this is a <laughs> this is a bugbear of yours. Um, they expect them to basically just sort of, you know, in a very defeatist way, look at their shoes and say, "Ah, oh, this is terrible," and you know, you can't sell your yacht into our port, and that's about it. And I think if the first version of the plan had worked, that would very possibly have been the case. And now. Right, you mean uh, we militarily? If the yeah. if the military side had gone off, perfect, like a three day shock yeah. and all, yeah, then, yeah. And look, you know, there was a lot of reason to think that that might happen. Uh, Ukraine is incredibly outgunned here, and you know, it's still far too early to tell. You know, the the relative. Effectiveness is it, haven't of you said that the Ukrainian army standing army is about two hundred thousand, and that the Russian troops amassed at the that yes. are currently so, involved that we know of is like 170. So that's why I said outgunned and not this... outmanned. That's okay. why I said outgunned and not, and not outmanned. Uh, how the outgunned can they more. be? The Russians have been getting, I mean, the Ukrainians have been getting part of the reason last week when well, I was saying this is a crazy time to invade is because the Ukrainians have never been better armed. They got all these stingers, all these javelins, all this other stuff, Turkish drones. Right. And that, uh, I, think, I think not m that much of that stuff has been moved in. There's definitely enough to make a difference already. But I think that this is a case of as the as time goes on, the Ukrainians will actually become the, the disparity of, of sort of uh, equipment will shrink massively. Um, as, right. As, no, but as, hold as on. Let's be clear on. here. Like the, 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 the goods promised by the US and the UK were already delivered. The reason that's true is because subsequently new promises have been made by the Netherlands, Germany right. and France. No, they, they definitely had. That's what I'm saying. Currently they definitely being. had some stuff, um, but it's difficult to know precisely how much of it has been deployed, how much of it has been used, and how effective all of it is, right? All but, of the U.S. stuff was deployed before Feb 16th, because that's what they thought right. was going to be the date. Yeah. Um, but, that well, you say that, but at the end of the day, the Ukrainians don't seem to have behaved like that. The Ukrainians didn't mobilize, call for general mobilization until a day or two after the invasion. Correct. Yes. Right. And that, I mean, that it's is not, actually, it's, it's, yeah, that's sorry, that, the general mobilization is a big deal, though, because uh, the Ukrainian standing army is about 200,000, which is about the same size as the reported figures of of how many uh, Russian troops are on the border there. Uh, it's more than even. Right. Yeah. The American but figures in terms of reservists, are 150,000 of, of the Russians. Right. In terms of uh, reservists, though, the Ukrainians have approximately 900,000 men with some sort of military experience, which is a lot. <laughs> That's, you know, like to match those numbers, Russia would have to also start calling up its reserves. 
um, which it hasn't had to do for the entire time that the Russian Federation has existed. And just to give um, a sense of this in South African terms, so Ukraine's population is similar to South Africa's. And it's a little bit that, less. It's 45 million, something like that? Yeah, to R58. Yeah. It's similar. Yeah. Um, and we've got about a million sort of, you know, estimates vary, but like, let's say 800,000 um, armed private security people in South Africa. Yeah, so that's, like, a, that's a South African military reserve. <laughs> We do have reservists, and apparently they're some of the best parts of the SA NDF. Um, but <laughs> it's it's a quirk. It's a quirky. Uh, yeah, but our security guards go. So, yeah, but it's like so imagine if, if you wanted to not only. I mean, if you wanted to take out the South African army, I think you need like a lawnmower or something. But if you, if you wanted to take out <laughs> ADT and and company around the country it would be a difficult business if they yeah. if, and, if, and then when you if add all in, of those people were committed to fighting yeah when you add in paramilitaries like the taxi bosses then you've got a real fight on your hands it's a real fight <laughs> <laughs> and that's what they're facing i mean that's what they're facing there's no one there is no hoodlum gangster private security guard police officer there is there, there, there's just there's just no one in ukraine who doesn't want to join this fight yeah in fact I saw, uh, for the, the good I reason saw, that they've got a just existential Threat, you know, right. I, I saw yeah. I saw Zelensky has just signed a decree that says that um, people in prison with military experience will be allowed to join the territorial forces and, and basically uh, take part in the invasion. So they really are like pulling from everywhere. Now, the thing about this reservist thing is that it takes, I think the Ukrainians estimated 30 to 60 days to mobilize the full force. Um, and that's why you'd want to presumably do it before you get invaded. Uh, so that you don't get overwhelmed in the early days. But anyway, we're, we're getting sort of off from, from what I was trying to say. Uh, yeah. So I think there's a version where the Russians, they have this plan, they expect easy victory, they think, you know, the Ukrainians are demoralized, the West is not going to properly support them, uh, Zelensky is unpopular, you know, his approval rating is below 50%, uh, and that Russian-speaking Ukrainians will rise up in support of us across the country where they, where they exist, particularly in the East. So they draw an operational plan around that. It doesn't work. And then they go back to the drawing board and they say, well, right, well, I guess it's time to go back to basics. And what is Russian military basics? It is big armored thrusts uh, and then huge amounts of firepower and artillery uh, uh, to, to basically just destroy enemy resistance completely. So kind of sort of slow and potting and you just flatten everything in your way and then you occupy it. Now, I think you're right that Putin, in his political goals, did not want to uh, cause civilian casualties in the beginning um, because, you know, he said that this was a military operation to liberate Ukraine. He knows that <laughs> if you bomb a city into nothing but rubble, that's not, no one is going to buy that, right? No one is going to say, oh, you've liberated this country. Um, and in fact, even the Americans who have a lot of precision equipment and actually do you know, try and avoid kind of flattening cities in their entirety, um, still get accused of that stuff, right? So I think Putin was very sensitive. And Israelis, to that. yeah. And Israelis too, right? Um, I think Putin was very sensitive to that fact. And I also believe that he probably instructed the Russian armed forces to be polite to Ukrainian citizens. Uh, from the video footage I've seen, the Russian soldiers tend to seem to have mostly been quite polite. Ukrainians don't yet seem afraid of them. They haven't just like been mowing them down with machine guns or whatever. However, 
I think that considering that if indeed the Russians are having a tougher time than they anticipated, which is the thesis that I'm kind of behind at the moment, that they they have no choice now considering the high stakes at which this conflict is is currently entering, where their economy is under siege, where uh, Ukraine has all this military support pulling in, that they're going to have to take off the gloves and say, okay, look, you know, we would have liked to have done this without civilian casualties. We would yeah. have liked to have done a start destruction, but yeah. we have no choice now but to go to the old school way of doing this and just like we did, uh, like the Syrians the did, like we helped the Syrians did, like we did the Nazis, like we helped the Syrians do against the other Syrians. Um, we're going to go through these cities that are heavily defended and we're going to flatten them block by block until the enemy gives up. And of course, the terrible thing about that is civilians, a lot of civilians will die and a lot of soldiers will die. Um, yep. And a lot of beautiful buildings and infrastructure and all sorts of things will be destroyed. Uh, it is like this is the kind of worst of war that that, yep. that that we may be about to see. And there's some evidence that this scenario might be emerging now. So um, we talked in the Daily Friends show about this today. There's footage of um, a lot more. There's a lot more footage of Russian shelling, which there was a little bit of in the initial few days of the invasion, but not a huge amount of. Uh, but now yeah, practically in, none. I mean, in the first day, the only there were some rocket were, attacks and ammunition yeah, up, which is not shelling, which is yeah, you know, precision, precision missile. There was one precision missile that seemed to have struck a an apartment building, but I mean, there was no allegation that it was an artillery shell. And the prob and the difference is, and I mean, and this is a difference that the Israelis like to emphasize. Hamas and Hezbollah are launching rockets into Israel and Israel's launching smart missiles back the other way. Now he has, right. uh, and so, okay, we're striking residential buildings, but we're targeting the specific spot where we saw the rockets get launched from. He has the but if, you, if, you, if you look the, at footage of Israeli strikes, you can see what they're talking about, right? You'll have a building that gets hit and then nothing around it sort of gets hit. It's like very specifically exact that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it and it's a and it's a grisly affair. I mean, we're clearly seeing uh, sort of parking lots uh, getting little scatter bombs already. Uh, if that if that gets, a, here's here's one of the problems that I that I face. So the first evidence that I've saw of shelling, I was just going through the time sequence. Day one, there were explosions, but no evidence of of what was being destroyed. And in fact, the mayor of the region just north of Kiev which included that airport, said that those first explosions, which were reported on CNN, um, I think well reported by the journalist saying, look, I have no idea what these are, that those explosions are actually Ukrainian sort of anti-aircraft uh, weaponry being Shooting used down, to take down Russian drones. Hmm. And that's why it's like there was all this talk of explosions being heard, explosions being heard. You're in a city of 3 million people. Why can't you see what was blown up? Well, that's why. Day two... Uh, the the big thing was that that building um, next to the airport uh, with the three story scar in its side, uh, six injuries, no casualties reported um, by the Ukrainians from that incident. And day three, I started to see the first evidence of shelling, of serious shelling. This is now Sunday, I think, and that was coming back from day two, but especially on day three, from the Donbass region. And the and the and the allegation was that around the Azov Sea, um, the 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 militias and, and Ukrainian army units that were there were 
using pretty old-fashioned unguided uh, artillery mortar shells and so on. Um, and uh, and I was and the reason I got into this rabbit hole, Nick, is because I I kept seeing three children. I kept seeing reports that multiple schools or just the plural schools um, have right. been sort of hit by Russian by the Russians. And then I was trying to find details on that. And then what ended up coming up was um, footage of, you know, primary schools in the Donbass region that had been shelled by uh, Ukrainian forces. And I was like, this is surprising. This is uh, not what I was looking for. But it also makes sense to me that 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 would be the region in in which you know conventional um non self propelled uh, shells and self propelled but unguided rockets are being used and the reason's twofold and this is a very serious concern for me notwithstanding the fact that it'll make me sound like some kind of putin puppet concern number 1 is that insofar as the ukrainian army remains a semi-regular hodgepodge that's been cobbled together. Um, I don't want to go down the Azov Battalion political avenue today. Just the sense in which there have been different battalions being brought together. There's a there is the I clear think that issue is more of, true in the Donbass than in the rest of the country. Yes, there is this clear issue of um, them just not having the sophisticated them not having the javelins and stingers. Uh, but instead having basically old Soviet yeah, tech. Yeah, old Soviet stuff. And so, yeah, it's not old Soviet tech is not known for its finesse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's a problem. That's a huge problem. Problem number two, and this is and this is looping back to maybe where we should pivot. I don't know. No, you must push back against me. But like at some stage, we've got to talk about the, the solution sort of side of things. Like, okay, this is terrible. What does one do? What would the good outcome be that's actually achievable? And 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 the prob the second problem I find in the Donbass is that like like I just I can't imagine and in fact haven't found um, any reports in sort of in mainstream English media about about bad Ukrainian behavior. Uh, the Associated Press and Reuters are the two most trusted English language publications in the world. And their reports since Saturday have been 80% regurgitated. So they'll have a new headline and a new nose, mm. but then the body of it is Zelensky said, Putin is evil. The other guy said, we're very brave. We don't need a, a, a lift. We need a gun. It's like th that regurgitation is a clear indication of an editorial line. And right. it leaves no room for criticism of the Ukrainian forces. I literally haven't seen. Now, the problem with that is it is the perverse incentive that it creates. The thing that I worry the most about is twofold. Is the is the the first thing that I flagged at the beginning of our sort of military analysis, which is that I think that even if the Russians so far are going according to plan, plan B, yes, not plan A plus plus, but still according to plan that they are not going to keep going according to plan because they're going to get stuck in the mud. They're going to get into a, a, an awful, you know, street block by street block kind of battle because Ukrainians really flip and don't like this. The other problem 
is that there is no incentive to stop Ukrainian armed forces from, in fact, positioning themselves in residential buildings and using the 20th floor of the Kievan residential apartment block to launch Stinger missiles at Ukrainian, uh, at, at Russian helicopters and uh, javelins at, at Russian armored troops. And if they do that in Kiev and Kharkiv, and maybe I don't believe that much of that has happened. I'm not saying that it's happened. I'm just saying the incentive structure from the Donbass, where it does seem like there has been proper higgledy-piggledy. Uh, if that starts happening around Kharkiv and Kiev, where the numbers are just much greater, where the troops amassed are just much greater, and the Russians then retaliate, um, it's the worst, That that's the worst case scenario, right? That The worst case scenario you that's were describing like earlier of Aleppo, of like eight months of just destroying block by block until you have a sort of mosaic of of crushed of of ceramic crushed to dust um yeah. and and bones and blood in between it that nightmare scenario is something to guard against and in my opinion it does require scrutiny of both sides um and i and i worry that there is no such scrutiny and i worry that um i worry that that's part of what makes it inevitable part of what makes it inevitable is clearly there's a lunatic in Russian military planning, who think who has overestimated their capacity? Um, that I don't know how to control for. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think. You, I don't you think know, that. can I put it in a different way? Here's a different way to put it, Nick. This is a controversial political claim to go away from the from the from the uh, military stuff. As a political claim, I say that every time a Ukrainian dies, that puts Zelensky in a stronger bargaining position and Putin in a weaker bargaining position. And that the terrible asymmetry here is that Zelensky benefits politically, not morally, and I'm not saying he wants this to happen, but just as a matter of inescapable fact, he benefits the more Ukrainian civilians die. Putin is in a worse position in terms of subsequent occupation, in terms of global standing, in terms of the financial war. And yet Putin actually does hold the preponderance of force. So the person with all the guns on his side, the more he shoots, the more he loses. But the only thing he knows to do to try and win is shoot more. And the person with all the sort of um, with all the kudos on his side only gets more kudos by 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 more of his own civilians dying. The problem so there think, is that is a recipe, yeah. if it's true, for neither of them signing on to a peace. In other words, will here's another way to put it. Would Zelensky make any concession at the moment? Or would he rather be like, you know what, if the the worse you punish us now the better it'll be for my legacy and for whatever comes right out of so that i think visit. i think i think there are limits to that um i agree with you that that is definitely the current situation but the truth is you can you can actually break you know there's a sort of myth that that we love to talk about like the heroic people the heroic fighters who just kind of go on forever and like every time there's a death that's another martyr but light a do, candle, like yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. But people, people do give up after they a while. Up. You know, yeah. you can only have so much destruction and so many deaths that you say, "Why are we fighting if there's not going to be nothing left?" Right. Yeah. Um, so there is a point at which civilian casualties won't help Zelensky because his people will start to say, "Okay, look, you know, we gave it a really good try, but dude, you know." We're getting hammered here. Let's let's see if we can if we can get a compromise because this is not worth it. We're definitely not at that point. 
No, uh, no, by a long no. way. No, yeah. As for the as for the negotiated settlement, there, I, to my mind, we are now in proper conventional war mode in a lot of ways, and that means that there will not be a conventional, uh, there will not be a settlement until there has been a decisive military engagement of some kind. It doesn't have to be so decisive that it like destroys one army or the other. But either the Ukrainian army has to be really hammered to the point where Zelensky says, okay, you know, I guess we're going to have to, we can make a compromise where you get to keep Crimea and, uh, uh, you know, you give us, and, and the Don, and some of the Donbass, the Donbass you already have, and we basically formalize the status quo, right? Maybe that's a, one compromise. Um, or the Ukrainians need to decisively repulse a very clear, determined, big... Yeah, they, I mean, they, they take out, they, they repel a huge attack, or they, you know, yeah. I mean, if they could just take out that 40-kilometer-long column. Right, exactly, that kind of thing, right? It has to be something like that. And then the Russians say, okay, look, you know, now we need an off-ramp, uh, so we'll just say that you're going to sign Minsk three, and Minsk three will be weighted in your favor, but we'll pretend like it was, you know, achieving all of our objectives, and then you can make some token gestures about, you know, shooting okay. as our battalion leaders. Okay, dude, you've done a great <laughs> job. You've done a great job of highlighting the point that I'm my my what I think is the most important point for outsiders, which is that we're not doing a good enough job to think about to think about what the peace looks like. Because you just described two things that sound exactly the same. What is the difference between Minsk three and Minsk three, right? Like in the one situation, the Russians went, in other words, you didn't say Putin gets a decisive victory. And then he says, let's install a puppet government and have the whole key and have the whole Ukraine. Uh, well, I think that option's clearly gone now. Because they didn't, you think if they'd won it in three days, they could have installed a puppet government. If they didn't have to win it, but if, if the Ukrainians, if it became clear that they were finished after three days, then I think they might have been able to do that. Because the Ukrainians would have just said, ah, you know, our politicians are useless. They didn't bother sticking around. Why should, what's the difference between them and this puppet government? It's all useless. It's a waste of time. You see, I find that curious because I, my theory is, okay. Let me let's put this a different way. So now we now we're in the section where we try and talk about what is the best possible outcome in terms of a negotiated deal for Russia, and what is the best possible outcome in terms of a negotiated deal for Ukraine. I'll do Russia, you do Ukraine. For Russia, I say that the best possible outcome is Minsk two plus a land corridor from the Donbass to Crimea. That is the best. Let me explain what that means. What does the Donbass in, include, though, in that settlement? Is it the whole of the Donbass province provinces, or is it, it is just the whole the of Lugansk Oblak? So um, Nick is asking a very pertinent question. Um, one of the difficulties is that Minsk too is not something that any of our listeners have read. <laughs> um, very few people have read it in English. It's almost impossible to find it in English. Um, so Professor Kim uh, Schlepper, is that her name? Princeton historian and international affairs expert. Uh, she on the on the Princeton University websites um, sort of debate about this. 
she put up 14 bullet points from Minsk II in English. And curiously enough, it's the first time between academics and specifically Princeton academics, I watch a lot of their sort of academic stuff. It's the first time I've seen someone shout, like talked down, like another panelist interrupted her because she'd, what she'd done is she wrote out the 14 bullet points of Minsk II that had been signed onto by Ukraine, by Russia, by Europe, and by the leaders of Dahansk and Lugansk and Donetsk. And she highlighted in red all of the things that the Ukrainians had promised to do and had not done, starting with offer elections to the people of Lugansk and Donetsk. She was not allowed to finish making her point. She was interrupted. And then the guy went on a like long tirade of like, oh, blah, 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 blah. And then she wanted to like, she was like, okay, but can I just finish making my point? And then the host said, no, we're going to move on because Minsk II is completely irrelevant to whatever is happening now because of the invasion, which I thought was like, just stands out because amongst those academics, they never interrupt each other as, a, as, as an expression of the power play. You really can't think about the peace deal that comes out of this without reflecting on the last signed agreement. Now, here's what you discover if you read Minsk II in Russian. Um, and I read it as carefully as I could, and I got some actual Russians to help me resolve some grammatical questions that I wanted to answer. Um, and I, I'm not a legal expert, but I have, uh, I have uh, done some pretty serious court reporting, um, and I know how to read the law. You're being and, too modest, Gabriel. You're a legal expert, or an expert there, in a court. <laughs> And there is, there is a very clear, some things are very clearly not time indexed and some things are very clearly time indexed, which is to say this happens, then that happens. And the third thing that's supposed to happen on the time index is that once this has happened, then you are supposed to allow an election. And this was not allowed. But the other part of the same bullet point is that you must change the law, which had already been passed um by i think december 7 2014 the ukrainian law on the special dispensation for the pseudo independent areas of luhansk and donetsk that law had already been passed and that was that came after minsk 1 and before minsk 2 and it was a reflection that law being passed was a reflection of what had been agreed upon at minsk 1 so Minsk 1, the promises were made, the promises were kept. Minsk 2, it said, you have to change that law to do one thing. And that's the answer to Nicholas's question, if this sounds like I've taken around one, which is to define the boundaries of Lugansk and Donetsk. Now, I have read the law. I've read the entire law on the pseudo-independent states of Lugansk and Donetsk as it was passed in December 7th, 2014, and as it was amended on March 15th, thereabout, 2015, which is also when the vote is supposed to happen. Those two things are supposed to happen by the same date. Uh, I, I read the amendment. Nicholas, it's very, very, I'm very, very sad to tell you that that amendment specifically fails to define any of the territory of Luhansk and Donetsk. So that is <laughs> one of the... <laughs> stupidest things that you, you know this always happens in international treaties no, you, 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 you joke but it is so common in international treaties that it's too hard to make the line and there's political pressure to come up with something 
So they always end up doing this. It's happened so many times in human history, and it almost always results in some sort of shooting match. Oh. <laughs> it's uh, so uh, bad. It's so bad. So so here's what here's what I'm saying is a Russian win, is that you say, you guys, we would have defined the boundaries to be just technically the oblast of Donetsk and the oblast of Duhansk, the two provinces, which is which is basically um, uh, significantly more than the occupied territory had been since the ceasefire, since Minsk won, but really is straightforwardly those two provinces. And Luhansk and Donetsk are on the western boundaries of those provinces. So there's no way to have the big cities inside of Luhansk and Donetsk inside of the broader region without having the border basically be what the traditional... Right. It, it, sounds, it sounds a lot like pushing Ukraine back to the borders it was during the time of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Uh, no, when... it's not as far as that. It's not as far as that. It's, it's much as far. It's, it's lit, it, it would be very conservative, in fact. It would, it, Kharkiv would be well inside of um, Ukraine. Um, the, 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 if you look by landmass, it would be like... 15% of you less than 15% of Ukraine um, would be uh, it would be 40 kilometers beyond the military border that had been established by Minsk too. So not very far, but I don't think that would be a win for Russia. That if it is just Minsk too, I don't think that it kind is a win. I think for it to count as a win, they have to do that. Plus a land bridge between the Donbass and Crimea. That way, and they can say we're justifying this because you guys deprived Crimeans of water. The the, the grandest military objective uh, reported on in all Russian news, and in exactly zero English news that I could find, was there was the blowing up of the dam that the Ukrainians had built to stop water from. Did you see the Crimea. picture of the dam, by the way? It did not look great, eh? It was not a large dam, though. No. But then you think if you did you see the pictures of, of the of where the poor it's like Catonians get their water from? It's like it's it, it, but it was it's just you know it's this like huge war breaking out, and then this is one of the things that's talked about as causing the war, and then you see the dam itself, and it's like, huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah dude, Sevastopol, I mean Crimea is like population is 1.2 million. It's not a lot of people. But it um, is but anyway, so the point is I think the Russian win is to get um is to get the Donetsk and as as those independent republics to stay inside Crimea. Sorry, not inside Crimea. For the Donbass, for Luhansk and Donetsk to stay inside Ukraine, but to have special status. So in that sense, it's like Minsk too. But that the boundary line of Luhansk extends all the way to the northern, all the way along the northern coast of the Azov Sea. So that everything in the Azov Sea uh, is either Crimean boundary line or Lugansk or boundary Russian. line or Russian boundary line. If they get that, they get the Azov Sea, they get a land corridor to Crimea, and they get to say that we've more or less enforced Minsk too, so we've just made you guys keep your promise, plus a little bit extra because you guys were douchebags to Crimea. If they go any further, if they take Kharkiv, if they try and take the the, the land going all the way to the border of of, of of Kiev, if they try and do something around Moldova close to Lviv, if they do any actual imperial expansionism, 
beyond that land border assessment. Even if they just want Odessa so that they can have the full, uh, so that Crimea becomes a landlocked country. That would be step two. I think even just taking Odessa, which, you know, there probably would be some people in Odessa who wouldn't mind that. Even that would be a loss for the Russians. Another strategic miscalculation, because they'd be putting themselves in the same position the Americans were in Iraq and Afghanistan, which is that you are a colonial force presiding over people who don't want you there. And even if you can get the president to sign on to it, you're going to have armed insurrection. He's blowing buildings up, hurting public transport. You know, you're going to have terrorists. You're going to have a terrorist and guerrilla warfare style problem combined for a long time to come. So to me, the Russian victory, if they'd done this thing in three days, uh, and they could force Zelensky to the negotiating table and say, here's what you have to sign on to, basically Minsk to, So the Donbass stays inside Ukraine, right. but Ukraine's constitution recognizes them so, so that they have enough power to stop Ukraine I, from ever joining NATO. So you've got a buffer state, but there's this land corridor too. I think that's the best for Russia. What's the best for Ukraine? Okay, so firstly, the one one last question there. Is it just NATO they can't join or also the EU? It, also the EU. I mean, it wouldn't be, just to be clear, Minsk II, according to Timoshenko and Poroshenko, two previous anti-Russian, pro-EU presidents, Ukrainian presidents that hated Russia and loved the EU, they said the problem with Minsk II, they said the reason the Russians are trying to enforce Minsk II, which, by the way, the Ukrainians had signed on to, was that it would effectively allow the Donbass to stay inside of Ukraine. Yeah. And veto into Ukrainian politics. It would. It, they would always veto. I don't know about Russian door. It's just the people who live there don't want to join the EU, it, and they would have enough of a vote in the parliamentary system that they would be able to effectively block Parliament from joining the EU or or NATO. Right. So I think a Ukrainian victory is probably something like. They uh, reclaim the territory in the Donbass. They accept Russian sovereignty of Crimea, um, but they agree to de- but the Russians agree to demilitarize it or to move Sevastopol. Um, you know, like move it, have a different naval base in the Black Sea, uh, and then they join the EU and NATO. That's presumably, I think, what the Ukrainians want to achieve from this. And I think that that's if, like, everything went well for them, I think that that's the best they could possibly hope for. Uh, so, sorry, Gabriel, I, I don't know when to use this, but I've been meaning to use it for a while. It's a yeah. quote from uh, astrophysicist Martin J. Rees, and he said, well, let me put it to you like a question. Why did God invent space? Why? So that not everything had to happen in Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you bugger. <laughs> oh, all right. All right. All right. I take it. I take it on the notes. <laughs> it was a Princeton professor doing all the interrupting. It was, I, I obviously take off to him. Sure. Everything. Everything's happening in Princeton. <laughs> Dude, Princeton has, Princeton has America's best Slavic department. And, <laughs> and Stephen Kotkin, I mean, and, and like, like I would say kind of undoubtedly best um, best overall sort of history, Eastern Europe, international affairs kind of combined department in America. That is literally um, 
I, I would say that's a huge part of how its international affairs school sort of has its name is that they 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 had they had a, a really good handle on the Cold War and then they and they didn't stop analyzing that region a lot. Uh, uh, one so. more addendum to the 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 Don uh, the Ukrainian victory scenario. See how easy um, it is to touch someone on their studio though. Instead of moving past, it's <laughs> psychological exposure of of the madness of the human monkeys. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, is that they would probably so in this version i think the ukrainians will only accept in their in, if they had a total victory and could dictate the peace terms um you know as far as is possible i think that they would not accept anything except the taking back of those regions of, of donbass and 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 luhansk but the only way they could make it work would be to give everyone in those provinces the option of whether to pick russian or ukrainian citizenship Okay, they'd have to abandon because nine hundred thousand of them have Russian citizenship, so they'd they'd right. have to abandon their Russian citizenship. They'd have the choice. They'd have to say, "Oh, like, they could keep it, but then they couldn't vote in Ukrainian elections, or something like that." Right? Like, like you know, they say, "Okay," uh, or or maybe Russia agrees to resettle them in Russia, or you know, whatever. So basically, no one ends up being one of these kind of you know, uh, sort of half stateless people who kind of wanders around and, you know, ends up getting abused by one government or the other. Um, so the ones that do want to stick with Ukraine could say, no, you know, even if they don't have Ukrainian citizenship, they could say, I want Russian, I want Ukrainian citizenship. And the ones who say, because I'm sure there's people who've moved there probably from Russia in the meantime. And people have been born since the. I think uh, it sounds pretty harsh. I think it's pretty harsh to say to the nine hundred thousand Ukrainians who were born well, in it, Ukraine and have Ukrainian passports and and then got Russian passports in addition that you have to um, abandon one of those. I think. Right. I mean, and, a lot of. And is, I agree with you. That is extremely harsh, but. Like we're getting to the stage of the conflict already, even after just a week, where I think that you know the outcome either way is going to have to end up is going to end up Pretty being harsh. quite harsh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So okay. So so I agree. So let's look at those. I, I wish I'd written down what you'd said, but let's try and remember it together. So on the first point, <coughs> we sort of agree. So, so we've laid out like what's Russia's best outcome and what's Ukraine's best outcome. I think there's some points of overlap. So let's just highlight those so that we can isolate the points of real disagreement. So the first point of overlap is like it's kind of in both of their best interest to just let Crimea for Ukraine to recognize Crimea as part of Russia. Right. Or maybe yeah. Russia can pay like a uh, an amount of money or something like that in the best example of Ukrainian Let's say okay. You, in a super duper victory. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You give us, you give us a, a, a like. It doesn't even have to be a lot of money. It just has to be a token and say, okay, we, we're going to sell it to you or something like this. Or you have to pay reparations for the damage that your 2014 invasion had caused or something, something like that, right? Just something so that the Ukrainian politicians can say, we didn't just give up our land for nothing. Yeah, and it and it has nothing to do with the coup in 2014, which created the illegitimacy crisis, which made the uh, referendum it's... legitimate, which makes Ukraine makes Crimea like Kosovo. Uh, anyway, I agree they wouldn't want that, but the point is, never mind the jazz around it. In terms of hard results, 
Crimea is officially recognized by both sides as being part of Russia. That's in both of their interest. The Donbass stays inside Ukraine. That's in both of their interests. That's a yeah. win for both of them. Um, something is done about the madness of the situation that at least allows people to vote again in the Donbass, which they've not been allowed to do for eight years. That's a win for both of them. Uh, now, I think we've covered, and, and, and I think we've sort of agreed, it's also a win for both of them if Russia doesn't have more, much more territory to, or territorial influence insofar as the special dispensation zones. Right. Um, and then the disagreements are that if Ukraine wins, then Russia has to pay a penalty for Crimea and has to move the naval base at Sevastopol to uh, the other side of the Azov Sea. Yeah. There's already two little harbors that they have. You know the reason they like Sevastopol traditionally? It's such a 19th century reason. The reason Sevastopol is the main naval base in the Black Sea is because the actual Russian territory um, military ports get very windy in September or something. <laughs> and, and like, it was it's literally just impossibly windy for, like, Crimean War 1856 era kind of military ships to be able to do anything. They'd just be run to ground. That is no longer a very real issue, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, if that's an issue for the Russian Navy, they, get, they have a lot of problems that they need to sort out. <laughs> so I, don't a, I don't think that's a real issue. So, and, and the point there, Nick, is that like the difference between a Russian win and a Ukrainian win still sounds very, very close. It still sounds like kind of the same thing. Uh, you know, it's like... Well, a, that's, that's, but dude, it, this is, this is why the invasion was such madness. Ah, okay. So you, 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 you're, you're foregrounding my conclusion. We can keep going down the list. In general, the actual win for either side is very, very close to the same. And so why is the invasion mad? It's mad for that reason. But likewise, and I, I shouldn't say but, I should say as Russians do, or I should explain that when Russians say but, they don't have a word for and. But just means and. And if you ever study logic, you will find that there is no logical distinction between but and and. You know, you say, this is true, but this is true. This is true, and this is true. Logically, it's exactly equivalent. Okay? And the Russian language just turns out to be very logical in this way. <laughs> their, their, their wins are very, very similar looking. And but both sides have have made achieving those wins as costly as possible. And the Russians, by doing this ridiculous invasion, and the West, meaning NATO, not meaning anything to do with values, has offered no criticism or no urging of Zelensky to let the dudes have an election to recognize well, Crimea uh, on the basis that there was a referendum on on the came on the election the point situation there are the, the separatists also played a role in disrupting those elections they postponed them what I think three times um the last time was in 2016 or something was it I think it was 
when they said, yeah, no, we're, you know, we're done with this farce. We're not going to hold the elections until the Ukrainian government does X, Y, or Z, right? Like it wasn't just the Ukrainians. And, and you know, the, and if you want to get very fucking. <clears throat> you, you, well, I've already sworn this podcast at the beginning, but it was if a you quote wanna, swear. If you want, I'm, well, I was quoting, I didn't actually say, I, I said, fuck. <laughs> Dude, if you want to go deep into the quagmire, it's not long after that, that bizarrely and mysteriously, the leader of, I think it is Donetsk, uh, found himself dead and replaced by a much more sympathetic leader of Donetsk. In other words, if I can find a reason to suspect like a Putin-style assassination in the region, it's an assassination of the most hardline of the two leaders going against the Crimea. Um, <laughs> and it's on the record. Uh, but before that, uh, okay, you can, you can say, you can say, and I would agree with you, um, that in 2016, uh, the separatists were not playing ball entirely. Um, before that, and subsequently, and especially in the last three years, don't you think it's fair to say, I mean, do you think it's unfair to criticize the Ukrainian government for failing to stick to its agreement in Minsk to, in particular for failing to administer a democratic election, which might, for better or worse, have gone against the interests of Kiev, have gone against the interests of Poroshenko and then Zelensky, by showing that most of these guys, uh, uh, when given the privilege of uh, an election, which is overseen by the OSCE, the you know the, the Grand European. Uh, Right, right. Election yeah, so oversight body. Someone, someone credible watching it. Which is, which is promised. The Russians forced this from, from Minsk too. It's signed in. The reason the OSCE, the, the head of the European Organization for Security Coordination, uh, the organization, organization for Security Coordination in Europe, OSCE, the reason they sign onto it in part is because, you know, Section Four says they must oversee the election. They must verify and validate the election and without their verification and validation the election will not qualify as uh, as satisfying any of the sort of interests of this treaty so you know it would have had like a like not just oversight from uh from reuters and 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 the da you know it would have had oversight from like well, quite I, hardcore I think, and an armed yeah. group I don't know. I don't do know you, how much. Do you, of, do you think there is of, no criticism? Two questions. Do you think there's no criticism to be leveled at, at Zelensky um, in that particular time period that he's been president for failing to administer elections? And do you think there's no criticism to be leveled at the so-called West, the NATO countries, for failing to apply any pressure on him to stick to his promise to allow elections? Do you think that such criticism, both of him not doing it and of the West not pressuring him to do it, is is unfounded? So I'd say there's definitely criticism for NATO. Um, until very recently, NATO did this thing with the Ukrainians where they sort of said, we're on your side. We're also not really going to make any efforts to be on your side. We're going we're gonna to kind of give you, you know, verbal support and we're going to send you some weapons here and there. Um, but will it be enough to defend a Russian invasion? I don't know. Like the US did most of that stuff um, rather than the other European countries. So they kind of left 
and I think that was very unfair to the Ukrainians because it meant the Ukrainians didn't quite have the resources to be confident in actually you know, taking a hard line, but they were also at the same time kind of being pushed to take a, a bit of a hard line because the West was not, you know, accepting, you know, the West was saying Minsk II is in favor of Russia and it's a, the Donbass is Russian puppet state, stuff like that. So I think there's probably something you could say about NATO, uh, definitely there. As the Ukrainians, look, I think that you very well could be right that they do definitely deserve criticism for how they handled their negotiations with, with Donbass and stuff. But I must say, I have a trust deficit when it comes to Russia and its allies. And I don't know enough about the very specific details on the ground there as to who was messing with who. So maybe, you know, the, the Ukrainians said uh, at one point, no, we're not, the, the, sorry, the separatists held a, a primary, they said, for their election. And the Ukrainians said, no, this is illegal. It's not uh, because the thing is supposed to be according to Ukrainian law, and this doesn't fit into the thing of Ukrainian law. Now, I think only if you were on the ground could you really tell whether that's uh, a legitimate complaint or not. Right. Oh, uh, no, it's well, so crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And insofar, also, as, you know, insofar as it's determined by the facts, not the... Also, the, the, the oversight by uh, European... Uh, what's it called? Um, by the OSCE. The OSCE. That's very, one, of those, one of those things where if you were Ukrainian, you would be very suspicious of because it might say in the text of the thing, this thing isn't valid without their approval, but it's very much one of those kind of de facto things where once the election is done... They can say, well, look, we had an election and you guys lost and we won. And it doesn't matter what these Western puppets say. You people are just sore losers and uh, you've lost the See, Democratic If you're going to take yet. that line, okay, so, so far I'm going to put your answer back to you. Mm. I say, does Ukraine deserve criticism for failing to uh, go forward and hold elections? Let, let the people in the Donbass hold elections. Vote. And does the West deserve criticism for failing to uh, tell them, hey, guys, you've got to do this. You promised to do it. It's a flippant democratic thing to do, so you've got to do it. And your answer is, well, yes, the West should be blamed for not giving Ukraine enough guns to take the hard line of denying elections. No, no, no. I, there was two parts to that criticism of the that, West. Yes, and then say that and in, and in, insofar as Ukraine is denying the elections, you know... I think they probably had a fair enough reason to deny the elections because no one could really oversee it that they could trust. Like this sounds like horseradish to me. And no, dude, I think dude, that dude, the, dude. the, the on, creepy underlying point about the de facto thing with elections is that Crimea had these elections overseen by the Russians, which but everyone said must be, must, be, must be bad elections. It must be that the soldiers like, you know, this is like Anschluss. This is like the Germans, you know, put the guys in the Zeppelin and there are 135 people there and 137 of them vote to join Nazi Germany. I remember reading that. That actually <laughs> happened. Uh, <laughs> the dude, Nazis dude, dude. were not no, no, subtle. No, you did, you did the straw man me there. Crimea, I have to, the I have thing to about Crimea, you. You did, did straw man me a bit. Thing, let, me, let me just say the thing about Crimea, which I've said before, is that independent pollsters, Levada, Washington Post, find that 85% of them... That doesn't mean the election was, was free and fair. It doesn't. Oh, but anyway. <laughs> this is eight years later. I mean, if that doesn't mean the election, no, no. The election it happened, may have represented they all voted. It may have it may have it may have represented. It's it's a little bit like the Russian elections, as you always make the claim, right? It's cheating in the Russian elections, but Putin, regardless, is still the most 
positive, popular political right, figure in Russia. Free and fair, as I've come to accept, the 1994 election in South Africa, as Dr. Anthea Jeffrey will tell you, was largely decided in a sort of cigar-filled lounge um, because of all the double-counted ballots. And, the, you know, there were some voting districts in KZN that voted 137% for the <laughs> and all kinds of higgledy-piggledy. It doesn't mean that election wasn't free and fair. The election was free and fair, at least in this sense, that the political parties all accepted the results, even though they ended up negotiating some of them, which is kind of an absurd way to do it. It's also free and fair in the sense that most people have accepted that the correspondence between the results of those elections and the will of, and the and the different preferences of people for parties was close enough that you could live with it. I think that there is this absurd standard of elections. If there's anything to criticize about elections, then you should say they they were they were they were BS, which has infected the Republican Party of America, which you know says that the 2000 election was a big steal. The 2020 election was a big deal. It infected the Democratic Party in 2016, which said because five Russian bots posted rubbish on Facebook, therefore that election was stolen. You know, dude, come on, get with the program. No, I, 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 I don't. I, I there agree can be some higgledy piggledy, but if 85% of people in independent polls say we'd like to be in Russia, and 85% of people in the election vote to be in Russia, and every year afterwards that the polling is repeated, you find the same results. Then I think we can say that election is as legit as elections get. I don't agree. I think process is very important. And I think that there's a degree in which process can be fudged a bit. You can say, look, you know, is the is the fudging of the process here uh, going to make some kind of major difference to the outcome? Is the process is the fudging of the process here going to seriously affect the political climate? Is the fudging of the process going to seriously delegitimize the political project? in its yeah. entirety right 2020 2016 in america those that didn't happen 2000 say, with al gore i would say in 90 i'd say in 1994 we were actually lucky if we had had another election like 1994 i would not even bother to call south africa a democracy correct um, no, but you get one free pass. I mean, it is a special occasion. The reason no, I don't think you get any free occasion. passes. I think that the only Wait, thing so about you want to say nineteen ninety four was not was not an election. Nelson Mandela was not democratically elected to be the first president of non racial South Africa. I don't know if those problems are as great as Anthea says. Then I think that that it wasn't a great thing. I think it was a good outcome because it was a no, resolution. no, no, no. I'm going to hold you to this. You're saying the Crimean referendum was not democratic. If you use the same standard, you must say Nelson Mandela was not democratically elected. He was not a democratically elected president. Well, that is the standard the, that you... I don't know the on it's the, not the same as saying, of the Crimean thing. It's not the same as saying, was it a good thing or a bad thing that the IFP only showed up on the ballot the day before with a whole bunch of stickers? Was it a good thing or a bad thing that you couldn't rally for half of the political parties and half of the townships because the other, you know, because it was like a no-go zone. Those were clearly all bad things. We agree about that. But as South Africans, I think we all agree that Nelson Mandela was democratically elected. And if you go to the New York Times or CNN or The Guardian or The Spectator, or as it happens, TAS or Russian television, RT or whatever you call it, or Novaya Gazeta, or the Moscow Times, which again is like a broad spectrum of different ideological points of view that those Russian language newspapers occupy. Or if you go to Der Spiegel, or if you go to Le Monde, or if you go to whatever China Global New Daily News Network, like I can't think of any newspaper in the world where you could just write Nelson Mandela 
the tyrant who stole uh, the, the South uh, African no, 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 executive. That's taking it way too far. That's he was democratically far. elected. He was democratically elected. No, but he either was democratically elected or he wasn't. Was he democratically no, but that's, elected? The, my point is that there's a that there's a sort of fudging zone here where democratically no, elected. My point is yes, there's the facts on the ground uh, exist on a grayscale, but. As with as with human rights, like either you've got the rights at some stage or you don't. Either you say, as ugly as the 2020 election was, in which Joe Biden achieved victory, as gross as it was that, I don't know what the Trumpkins hate the most, like pickets, as gross as it was, you can complain about that. You can say this is a problem. Change the electoral laws so that people can't go hand out water bottles at the election queue change the law so that you can't look i think it's a good thing to have a law against people being able to go into into private homes and say look i'm telling you you should vote for this guy just sign here and then i'll go deliver your ballot for you that happened in the american election in 2020 i don't think that that's a very democratic way to go about things i think that the law should be changed to stop that from happening i think it's crazy to say oh, that is that is bad in that quite a Joe, few states that's well, it's banned, in more, it's banned in more states in 2021 than it was in 2020. Yeah, which I agree is a very good thing because it's that a good is thing. not great. And in fact, but I do Nick, think that it's a challenge But Nick, we know people, it's a challenge to the legitimacy. But dude, when, when people say Joe Biden was not democratically elected, doesn't that binary of like, no, either you admit he was democratically elected and you've got to deal with it, or the thing is so corrupt that you have to fight it. Doesn't that binary enter your, your mental calculation? And you come to the conclusion, no, Joe Biden was democratically elected. Might have been ugly, might have been imperfect. There might be laws that you want to change afterwards to stop things from happening. Same in 2016, same in 2000 with Al Gore and uh, and Bush, same in South Africa in 1994. I feel like whatever the, Anthea feels like whatever the issues were with the, whatever the right. issues were with the so, 1994 election, it would be only a crazy person would deny that Nelson Mandela was democratically elected. Right. We, so what? Here's, here's what I'm trying to say, though, and, and, you, and you're kind of running away with it. I'm trying to say that just because people subsequently had the conclusion of the, out, of the outcome, and by the way, it's 10 points less than I think what the actual vote was um, on the day, according to the opinion polling. No, seven, there's a seven-point drop, and it's not surprising, and, and the opinion polling was higher. Um, the it, it goes from like 92 to 85, and that drop is unsurprising. I mean, right, uh, but I think words, I the think the polling reflected in 2014 what the voting was in 2014, and then slowly but surely, year by year, you've seen a few people change their minds and be like, Oh, we don't like it so much, but 85% are still. I, I think it's actually the I'm pretty sure that the polling's gone the other direction that people become more in favor of the crowd than less. No. Well, not according to Washington Post. Their polling went from 92 to 85. Okay. Well, whatever. Um, I do think there is a realm in which you could have called it democratic enough. And I don't know enough about the specific details, but I'm skeptical of those details, uh, of, of the conditions, because it was during a time of profound anarchy and invasion, right? There were Russian troops who had entered into the thing unmasked and had occupied it and basically pushed out the Ukrainian forces. That is going to mess with people's, the way that people vote. Now, maybe the result still would have been, and I think there is reason to think, I think you're right that there's reason to think that the result always would have been in favor of it because, you know, 
there was polling done, I think, a way ways back in the sort of like early 2000s that found that, you know, quite a lot of Crimeans were pretty in favor of joining Russia. And that's precisely why I said that in the settlement, even a pro-Ukrainian one, Russia keeps Crimea. I know. We're digging down a funny hole here. The whole, the reason we've come, Nick, I try to flag, let's talk about what's Russia's best piece, what's Ukraine's best piece, and then noticing how close they are because I believe that there is a peace deal to be had. I believe there's a peace deal to be had after three days, which was not Russia takes everything. Um and and that there's still a peace deal to be had, and 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 I kind of feel like talking a peace, and 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 maybe that's just because I'm a, a silly bully, but we we got deflected onto this channel uh, about the specifics of the Crimean election because I asked you a simple question: Don't you think that the Ukrainian government deserves criticism for failing to allow elections to go through in the right? But I was saying, and don't I you think saying... Joe Biden yeah. and before him so, Donald so Trump? I was trying to push back Johnson, on what on what you and before said before him Theresa May on that point, right? Yes. So, so on the West, I said either they must have given him proper support and proper weapons so he to justify the hard rhetorical line they were taking, saying this is illegal, this is that rubbish. That doesn't justify the line. Or no, 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 to support because they said to him, the line. They said yes. to, they said to Zelensky, They said to they said to the Ukrainians. They said, "You guys have been invaded. We are outraged at this, and they have stolen your land." Well, you guys have got to go and do your own thing, right? There was some support, sure, but it wasn't enough to make them any at all confident that they could act as though their land had been stolen. Or they should have said, look, guys, we aren't happy about this either, but here's the facts on the ground. Uh, you guys are, are out of luck, and you're just going to have to accept this for now, and maybe we you can made prevent a promise. any further. You right. made a promise to let them do elections. Right. I'm not talking about vague so, things. I'm talking. You're not using this word. I'm saying the criticism is they should have said, Biden should have said, Trump should have said, uh, Angela Merkel should have said, Olaf Scholz should have said, Emmanuel Macron should have said, Boris Johnson should have said. All of these leaders who are ripping their chests, ripping their shirts open and, and bearing their great humanity and thinking about how sad it is. You you know, on Sky News, there was this terrible exchange. Dude, what a terrible exchange of whataboutism. The, the, the Sky News reporter asks, a lot the, of that these days. asks the Russian foreign minister... The, that sort of I can't remember her name, and I'm going to be sort of silly and describe her as an attractive blonde woman. Um, but <laughs> that may, maybe that'll ring a bell for some of the viewers if they. If I know who you're talking about. Well, <laughs> I also okay, can't remember so, her name. <laughs> well, so we're both bad people, and it shows. How it's yes, serious. no, we but are. We okay, we're sorry. both unreconstructed, knuckle dragging idiots. There we go. <laughs> 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 Oh, that's true. Okay, so anyway, Sky News asks her on 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 the day after the invasion. We've heard a report of three children having died um, in the course of the invasion so far. How, how does that make you feel? How does that make Putin feel? And she goes on this tirade about like, you know, starting out by saying this is tragic. We are very very sad about this. These are human beings first and foremost. These are like our fellow Rus, which is not the same as Russian. They're not saying that there's no such thing as Ukrainian. They're saying that Malarus, Belarus, and uh, Belarus and Vitikarus, they're sort of all cousins. Anyway, that's all of the story we've touched on. Uh, but I, anyway, I don't think it's a great reason to have extra sympathy because someone sort of belongs to a similar race to you. But that's me. Um, I clearly think that <laughs> you're, clearly, um, you're clearly not a majority voice in whatever the hell's going on in Eastern Europe right now. <laughs> 
On that front, no, not at all. And, and, it, and it is what most makes me want to move there. Just flipping, someone put a flag down for non-racialism and like just stop caring about your bloodlines. God damn it. Anyway, um, she then goes on like a 10-minute spiel about the, let's say, 13,000, let's say 16,000 people that have been killed in Donbass in the last eight years going through the numbers of the children, going through the particular places where children were killed, going through all of the children that were killed that no one reported on CNN or Sky News or BBC. And why did you not care about those people, she says. How dare you come in now at this stage where we are trying to end the war and tell us that we are the evil ones. You have perpetuated this war. How have you perpetuated this war? Firstly, by turning a blind eye to all of the babies and children and sweet old ladies being killed uh, in Donbass, and secondly, by refusing to apply any pressure on Kiev to administer elections in Donbass. And it's such a strange moment because she is speaking as a representative of a country that is illegally invading another sovereign country. Dude, I don't want to call Ukraine a democracy because it flippin' doesn't satisfy my favorite conditions for a democracy. <laughs> According to Ukraine, Crimea and the whole Donbass be belong to Ukraine, but no one was allowed in either of those regions. And that amounts to like a, 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 a quarter of the population, a fifth of the population, 20% of the population or whatever it is. Um, maybe less, 8% of the, uh, no, what is it? 16% of the population. A no one was allowed. Amount. A significant amount. No one was allowed to vote in the election of, of, of uh, which resulted in Zelensky's uh, elevation to, to the president. It doesn't, you know, if you had a South African election and you said no one in the Western Cape or Gauteng is allowed to vote because there's too many degenerates or KZN because there's too many degenerates in those three provinces. That's not, not what they the said. I agree. I'm just giving. Okay, if you said no one is allowed to vote in those regions for some other reason, I would, I would, I would struggle to call the thing that emerged from that a democracy. But I'm prepared to do it because I'm trying to work with what I find on the ground intellectually, if nothing else, in terms of what most other people think. And most people living under Kiev, uh, Kiev's rule uh, think of Zelensky as a democratically elected president. So granting them, just granting them the respect of, 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 of status inculcated, uh, of, of a status that is inculcated precisely by common opinion. President is just something that people agree on. Okay, so they've got that agreement that he is the president. They've got the agreement that he's democratically elected president. That means something. If I grant them all of that, and I'm very happy to do so, I, once I've talked myself into the position, <laughs> I, start out, I start out unhappy and then I can make myself happy. Once I grant that he's the president, I cannot understand how he fails to try very hard to make those elections work. And I cannot understand how Merkel, Skoltz, Macron, uh, Boris Johnson, Theresa May, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Donald Tusk, the grand Polish nationalist sort of head of the EU interventionist. I don't understand how any of these guys with a straight face can claim to be defending Ukraine, a freedom-loving country from Russia, an autocracy, a dictatorship, when the Ukrainians have had ample opportunity, at least in Zelensky's presidency, and really in the last two years of Poroshenko's presidency, and really for most of the period of the last eight years, to intervene, pull off the elections, 
take the loss, they're going to see that it's like Crimea again, that most of the people there are very eager to vote for leadership that don't want to join the EU, that don't want to join NATO. Live with it. I mean, that is democratic values. So uh, how, here's, can, here's, how can you here's fail? What a to, I don't say. understand. Here's, I don't here's understand what a Ukrainian would say to you. Fail to apply say, that pressure. Here's what Zelensky's people would say. And this is why I think the conditions, the very intimate day-to-day -day conditions on the ground are very important. And I don't think that there's been particularly good reporting of this. They would say, we can't hold those elections because those separatists don't want us to. They're making an argument in bad faith. We only signed Minsk to uh, because that of, is, I've called bullshit on that. Because of the threat. That of argument was true for three months. It was not true for eight years. How do you know that? I'm confident in that assertion. Okay, but that I suppose that that is the root, in a sense, of our disagreement. It's I'm not, not no, it's not. It's not the root of our disagreement because that is only asked. So this because I asked you two questions. The first question is, do you think that the Ukrainians are deserving of criticism for failing to hold elections? The second question is, do you think that the so-called West, that the NATO powers, are they guilty of failing to apply pressure on the Ukrainians? to achieve those elections. So and if, and this if answer indeed the answer of like local conditions are really confusing. That doesn't explain why no, no, the no, no, it does it does Germany... it does explain. No, it does explain because here's the thing, right? If the conditions show that it was entirely Ukraine's fault or even mostly Ukraine's fault, it doesn't have to be entirely their fault, that those elections were not held, then the answer to your question is yes, they should have been criticized by the West. But if those local conditions show that the Ukrainians did make a good attempt to hold elections there. I mean, they did pass a legislation, I think, that would allow that. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that one. Then they are not deserving of blame. I, okay, firstly, my understanding, I'll, I'll look into, I don't know, I don't know after the end of 2015 whether they passed some legislation. Um, to I think they may have during know, Zelensky's uh, time in office, because I'll one of the that. things he was elected on was, you know, to finally bring a peace the conflict to an end. Right, yeah, exactly. To be a compromiser. So I'm not sure. I'll I'll go and check that out, and I will tell everyone on Two Crickets next week what I find. Um, because th because that is an important point. If they manage to push through the legislation that they promised that they would achieve by March 2015 under Zelensky's presidency, then good on him for doing that. In terms of the conditions on the ground issue, I've got to tell you, I have read quite a lot of the New York Times and of um, opinion pieces from the Atlantic Council, which is the foremost sort of think tank in this domain in America. The argument that I find, this is why I talked about reading Minsk to myself in Russian, because I couldn't find it in English. The argument that I have found was not that the conditions on the ground were, were like practically, like it was practically impossible to get the ballot boxes and have people come in and vote. The argument that I found was that as long as there are Russian troops around, you can't expect the election to be free and fair because you can't know what kind of background intimidation is going on. And that's why I got stuck in the Crimean referendum 
because that's the argument that was used on the Crimean referendum. Because the people supervising this thing were Russian troops, um, it can't be legitimate. I'm saying that argument a priori, you know, libertarian, there's a kind of a priori socialist libertarian problem that I have. People who make up a rule in the abstract and aren't willing to look at the evidence that comes in afterwards kind of, uh, I think, are making a philosophical mistake about how much you can know without actually getting curious about what the facts are on the ground. And the facts on the ground are that it turns out those Russian soldiers made practically no difference to the uh, relationship between like popular polls and what was actually voted on. And moreover, insofar as there's a legitimacy issue in the instance of the Donbass elections, the OSCE, the Organization for Security, uh, whatever, the election Europe, whatever it is, yeah. the, the, those guys would be, would be monitoring it and that would grant it an independent legitimacy that had been signed onto by both sides. So, so I think both of those desideratum are kind of matched. Uh, in other words, insofar as you're asking for for basic reasons to hope that this, 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 this thing is going to be legit enough, even if there are Russian soldiers around, you've got two reasons to think that it can work. One is that it's already worked elsewhere, right next door, under very similar conditions. And the other one is that this is actually going to be better because there's going to be an independent observer that everyone in the world can trust. Now, the, the, the third factor, which really matters, and this is where the debate has placed itself on the Atlantic Council, in The Economist, in The New York Times, on written CNN things, when I see opinionistas appear on, on, on DSTV, on the, on the sort of English language channels that I see. They say, they end up making a sort of systemic criticism of Minsk II, which is they say, well, okay, here's the thing about Minsk II, is that it says you have to have elections, and it says the Russian troops have to completely withdraw from the Donbass. But it doesn't say which has to happen first. So there's just this sort of semantic disagreement where the Russians say, Oaks, you have to have elections now. And the Ukrainians say, no, 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 we'll have elections just as soon as you withdraw your troops. And then the Russians say, we're very happy to withdraw your troops. So glad you mentioned it. Uh, but could you have elections first? And then the Ukrainians say, <laughs> yes, you know, the classic, classic problem of, 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 you know, treaties with mutually, you know, Without without proper timetables, it's a, it's a hostage situation, you know. Like, are you right. going to hand over the hostage, or are we going to hand over the cash? No one trusts each other, so it's like you hand over the hostage first. Okay, we'll do it at the same time. Okay, we're going to withdraw the troops at the same time as you have the election. That doesn't work. <laughs> like, that's unfeasible because an elect. Okay, that's why I. That's why I spent. That's why I went to the European Union's official document on Minsk 2. Right. To read and it's got Minsk a summary. To show the time timetable. And the English version goes to a dudhead website, which is the same thing that I found in 2015, which is the last time I tried to read Minsk 2. You know, and the, and the can, Russian can version you can actually there? get. Yes. Can I go on a tangent there? This just shows the sort of, in a certain sense, the unseriousness that some of these yes. documents... Are, are made is that it's like you can't actually you say oh this is so important it's going to bring peace it solves everything and then it ends up being not actually put out in public no one bothers to discuss the details blah 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 and i think there's probably reasons to criticize those details and you know why it was signed and all that but you're right like why are people not actually reading the document why is the eu why is no one bothered to make sure that the link is working <laughs> 
why is the EU not making sure the link works? Like those oaks. That's a very important question. That, you really, you really need to do the bare minimum if you want to. If you want to be so brazen in your like self righteous condemnation of the other side, like try and Make get sure the, the link works. link to the peace deal that was last signed and represents the calamity of like what was abandoned. Get that link to work in Russian. Um, it, it's, it's just really straightforward that the timetable is that first you have the elections and then then and thereafter there's a there's a, a withdrawal and that withdrawal terminates with in th i think it's 30 days and at that point the ukrainians the ukrainian government the last stipulation is the ukrainian government must then have full control of its own borders so it really lays out the timeline the first thing that happens is a ceasefire. The second thing that happens is a withdrawal of heavy artillery, like either side of the line, which basically has been maintained. I mean, part of the reason there have been so few casualties for most of the Crimean, of the Ukrainian civil war, is that this shelling issue was dealt with by Minsk too. And then it says the day after the OSC, the, the, uh, not the OSC, the day after. 14 days after the first thing, uh, the the initiation of the electoral process must begin. And it must conclude effectively by March 2015. And at that time, you have to have the election and you have to have the boundaries declared. You have to amend the law, the Ukrainian law, to, to just properly describe what the boundaries are of that thing. And they, and they do amend the law. And when they amend the law, Nick, that's where they insert the part where they say, as long as there's any Russian troops. When they amend the law, they say, um, uh, there shall be no foreign troops or foreign um, military technical equipment. Con contractors or something. Military technical equipment. Military techniki. Techniki is a funny word, but it's technical equipment um in in that region and that's where the clause that's where the ukrainian argument hinges they say no our law says you can't have this election as long as there's foreign military technical equipment around in the donbass and this law is specifically about the donbass now that's ridiculous for two reasons firstly it goes against what they promised in minsk too which is that first you have the ceasefire then you have the uh the neutral zone created then you have an election and then within 30 days, the Russians have to completely remove themselves. It says 30 days after that election, there can be no foreign military presence in any of Ukraine. And the Ukraine must have full control of its own border, and that must be respected. That was the sequence of events described in Minsk 2. That's what Professor Kim uh, Schlepper uh, tried to put up, did put up on, on in English. You can go consult it on the Princeton University website, uh, debates about this, and she was shouted down. <laughs> <laughs> I came back to it. You can't stop. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's really important, Nick. And I don't think it's here's, – here's the point I want to try and get across morally speaking. The fascinating thing about war is that time moves faster than elsewhere. And so the, the inevitable and relentless moral tension between looking back at history to find who was right and who was wrong and therefore punishing those who were wrong – and rewarding those who were right and the forward-looking gaze according to which you say what is the circumstance on the ground now and how can we best achieve a modus vivendi as morally compromised as it might be 
pragmatically that actually gives us a chance at peace, prosperity, going forward, togetherness, and so on. That tension exists obviously in South Africa. Like most of South Africa's parliament is trying to legislate as if it's 1985 and white farmers are the enemy. These oaks are so flippant out of touch, right? <laughs> but they've got a point. If it was still 1995, 1985, like, sing, kill the Boer, pass a law to expropriate farmers' property without compensation. All of that stuff seems pretty well justified by the evil nature of the regime that's that's presiding at the time. Uh 30 years have passed, it feels ridiculous to look far that back, to look back that far. You want to look forward. You want to see how do we go forward better together. That's kind of what we focus on at the Institute. I'm happy with that. That's 30 years intervention, right? Something like that. Five years, whatever it was. Dude, in war, it's like years become minutes. Things change so mm -hmm. fast. So I'm apparently, not trying to look. I'm not trying. I just want to say, I'm not trying to look back into the past to say, the Ukrainians were bad. They should have had the elections. The West was bad. They should have enforced, encouraged them to have the elections. They should have done more to secure the elections. And and because they were bad, they deserve what they're getting now. To me, that argument seems as stupid as any kind of revanchist. I think that is an evil style of argumentation. I think punishing people in that backward-looking way is backward. Right. That's, that's, what, not that's kind I'm of what causes World War One. I'm saying what I, I'm drawing this out because I want pressure to be applied on Zelensky to go to the negotiating table and recognize what I think we were onto halfway through this conversation, which was that there's a lot of common ground between the Russians and the Ukrainians. There is a good reason and a good basis for them to find a peace deal. We both have to compromise. Um, maybe Russia moves its, its base from Sevastopol to mainland Russia that costs us $4 billion dollars. And Ukraine also then agrees to let the Donbass technically connect in the land border through to Ukraine. But all of its, but Crimea stays in Russia, Donbass stays in Ukraine, special dispensation is allowed. I think the ultimate uh, thing is that uh, where I probably disagree is I think Ukraine must stay out of NATO. Um, uh, but maybe that must be compromised too, and the country must be split. Yeah. I don't know, but I. I but, th but that's my focus. Is, is I that, think that, that is if the you can't problem. criticize, if you can't, but I think the central problem is that most people in English can't criticize Ukraine, and as long as you can't criticize Ukraine, they don't have any reason to compromise, and as long as they have no reason to compromise, the Russians will not stop killing, and that's just a bad situation. The Russians must compromise. They must flip and stop this thing. The Ukrainians must compromise. That's my radical centrist position, that, that there's a bit of a pox on both houses and that they must right. flip and grow up and stop letting people die. Right. Yeah, I, you know, I think that we're not going to see anything like that, at least for a while now, because this is full on war and it's going to be decided on the battlefield in one way or another. And that doesn't necessarily mean that either army will be 100% destroyed. But someone's going to have to get a real, real bloody nose um, before this thing is is uh, is concluded, um, and that's the unfortunate thing. And that's actually why I I, I prefer um, an aggressive peacetime foreign policy because I believe that it helps to prevent this, right? This. Yeah. when people actually start shooting at each other. I think that it's important to, for example, you know, put soldiers in Taiwan with defensive weapons. Not because I want them to start firing missiles at China and, you know, go liberate Beijing, 
but because I think it makes China less likely to land troops and then we get whatever's going on here, except, and you will agree with me on this, whatever criticisms we might have of the Russian army and its treatment of the people of Ukraine, it ain't nothing compared to what the Chinese will do to Taiwan. And I guarantee you that. There is not a single in universe in which Russia is more harsh than China, I think, to Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the better we can avoid that. Mm. And I hope that that is the, is, the, is the thing that comes out of this when this conflict is over. I hope that um, as soon as peace happens, that countries like China will say, you know, see what Russia just got into there and... Uh, Cost nah. a lot. Not worth it. Nah, not worth it. We're just going to continue building, you know, Chinese socialism Highways in the country and... or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that would be nice. Um, I would still like yeah. to see China be a democratic country, but, you know, whatever. If, if that's if that's the only, if the option is war or that, then I'll take that. Right. Uh, but anyway. So that's interesting. So, so, so from that perspective, the better Russia does. The question is not, I think that's a very interesting inflection because, you know, the, 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 the China thing often comes in because it's like, okay, even if people disagree, whatever, you know, there's, there's an even scarier common enemy or whatever. But I think what you're saying is the, a lot of the analysis, which says China, China saw the invasion and thought, oh, well, now's the time to quickly try and invade Taiwan. Oh, well, they're not seeming to do that. Okay. It's over. No, that's not the real issue. In your analysis, the better Russia does out of this, the more risk there is, the more the risk there is downstream, years down the line. If Russia really does well, then China thinks to itself military adventurism is 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 rewarded not just if you do a, a funny thing in Abkhazia and Ossetia, yeah. and Georgia, but even if you go full on. Yeah, you go the um, whole hog. I think that's a terrible, that's a terribly serious concern, and so that's and so that's a good reason to hope that the Ukrainians um, hold out, hold out for long enough that like there's a proper negotiated settlement and not a victory parade. Well, that there's a victory parade going, you know, for relatively speaking, that there's a victory parade for the old Ukrainians. Hmm. Um, anyway. Interesting. Uh, interesting, we, interesting. We, we promised before this show to each other that we would not have a two-hour uh, mega special um, as we've been doing recently. And I said that this was entirely up to Gabriel because he was the one who talks too much. But I feel like I've contributed equally in this particular discussion to its two-hour length. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so we must call it there. Do you have a recommendation uh, apart from peace? Because I think both of us recommend peace. Yeah, man. Amen to that. Um, I, I, can I make two recommendations? Sure, I, go ahead. I'll, I'll send them both to you so that we can put them in the in the uh, sure link attachment. Yeah. One is uh, a piece written in Foreign Affairs by Professor Sherrott. Uh, it's basically a summary of her own book called Not One Inch. And she published it, I think, last year. Uh, quite good timing. Won uh, Best Book of the Year Award from the Financial Times or something 
like that London-based publication. She's a professor at uh, John Hopkins, which is right next to University of Pittsburgh. Um, I always thought areas. you were going to say the P word again. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. No, she's really good. She's really good. Um, <laughs> for a Johns Hopkins professor. No, no, no. She she really is. Very <laughs> Nicholas is goading me into sounding like a total. <laughs> she's probably good. Um, it's what it's makes just jealousy, dude. What makes this book most exciting is that she managed to, uh, through three years of letter writing and subpoenaing and prior applicationing and all kinds of things, get the Bill Clinton Library to release the records of various memos, phone conversations, um, and letters uh, during uh, his administration. Uh, it's easier to get, although it took some effort to get stuff about the Bush senior administration as well. So she really sort of starts around 88 and goes through the 90s and looks at the internal disagreements that were happening at the Pentagon, the Secretary of State, the intelligence services, and the White House itself about how to deal with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the reunification of Germany and the promise made by James Baker Secretary of State at the time to Gorbachev that we will, if you allow Germany to reunify, if you pull out the Soviet forces there, you withdraw nuclear weapons, so on. We will go not one inch eastward. NATO will not expand eastward by a single inch. Um, now, Surratt makes the argument that that promise was offered at a time when uh, the president's attitude was actually not in line with it, and the Secretary of State was sort of speaking out of turn. Uh, the Russians obviously latched onto that and other similar locutions to, to justify their complaints about NATO expansion. But what's interesting about her book is that instead of saying, like George Kennan, who was an architect of Soviet containment policy, that like once the Soviet Union is dead, you should stop trying to contain Russia. You should do the opposite. You should say the problem with you guys was not that you were Russian and powerful and the largest country on earth. The problem with you was that you were communist. And now that you are no longer communist, we will truly embrace you. We'll help you protect property rights. We'll help join you in free trade agreements. We'll help join you in military agreements and so on. That was his style. Like basically bring Russia into NATO, either dissolve NATO or bring Russia into NATO. That's one radical option. There's another radical option, which is the one we've seen, which is, as she describes it, as Professor Surratt describes it, not one inch is off limits for NATO expansion. In other words, NATO should take, join us, get Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania and Poland and just NATO should go everywhere that it can. NATO should get into Ukraine if it can, get into Georgia if it can, it should make the promises as it did in Bucharest in 2007-2008, which um, led to the Georgian 2008 war. So there's the extreme expansionist option, which is what we've seen, and then there's the extreme um, relaxation option, which is what people like Kennan argued for. And I think what Sarat does really well is she finds all of these leaders in the Pentagon, in the intelligence services, in the Secretariat of State, um, you know, the American Ministry of Foreign Affairs and so on, making a different argument, saying maybe we can expand NATO eastwards without pushing the nukes and the troops eastwards. Maybe we can do this through this program for peace, which offers these bespoke in-between little negotiated agreements. Maybe and a super important reason to do that is because 
on the one hand, you've got these small ex-Soviet satellite states that are terrified of Russia getting its act together again and, and, and colonizing them. But on the other hand, are terrified of Russia being antagonized by a European kind of colonial shift to the east. So we don't want to be taken by the West. We don't want to be taken by the East. We want to be able to sort of make things up as we go in a very bespoke fashion. Norway actually sets the trend as she finds it. And she finds that Bill Clinton was sympathetic to this and would have got along with it were it not for his loss um, at, I think it is the 96 or thereabout um, midterm elections. Yes, and I, th I think both of us have criticized Bill Clinton as having a foreign policy driven entirely by polling. So, so, and he sees the polls are saying it's much better to just go, you know, put the nukes wherever, expand eastwards. It's going to be great. Polls will like it. Uh, so she says American hubris, she, like John Mearsheimer and various others, you know, says that is that, that, that if, she, you know, this was published obviously before the war, like if there is a war in Ukraine, American hubris is going to have to look itself in the face and see blood on its own hands. Um, and in a complex moral universe that doesn't exculpate the Russians or, or Putin in particular, or especially Russia's parliament, which voted for it. Um, but it does, but it does make it too complicated to to just pick a side. Um, now, that's a that's a you know professor of history, and she's got an agenda in terms of furthering her her you know, special line. And often when people are doing third way stuff, you know, you can, you can wonder, was it really possible? But anyway, check out the link. It's a, it's like a 17 page read, something like that, but it's a really good read. Um, she's got really good quotes. As I said, she was the first person to, to disclose all this archival material to really be able to see what the Americans were thinking when they expanded NATO to the East. Um, and if you, if you can hold on to, reading something for the sake of like a moral curiosity rather than as a reason to think Putin suddenly an innocent angel uh, or without, you know, without, if you, if, 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 if you're keen on like a version of the world that doesn't have angels and demons, but instead has like a lot of compromised monkeys that have fallen out of the tree and, and haven't really figured it out. I think it's a good link. And there was another one, but I spent so long, Nick, trying to stop <laughs> And I must shut up. You, I'm, you, you must shut me up. I'm, I'm terrible. So I'm going to. My recommendation yeah, I, I, is longer than the actual article. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to recommend the channel I talked about in the beginning uh, when I uh, used as a marker for what's going on. I'm going to recommend the channel on YouTube, Life of Boris, but I'm going to recommend specifically his cooking videos. They're quite silly, but I've actually made some of the recipes in his cooking videos. It's all sort of traditional Slavic food, um, various sort of soups and sandwiches. Often a lot of stuff, it's got a focus on things that you can get with a budget, right? Because the idea that Boris likes to push of the Slav life is uh, making do with very little. Yes. And um, it's, it's it's got lots of, I, I've made some of the recipes on it and uh, the beef stroganoff was really good, although I think I had a heart attack afterwards. Because uh, it was, it was a bit. <laughs> there was a lot of we, heaviness we oily to the food. And... <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, and I also made uh, what's the Polish name for the dumplings? Um, Pierogi. Pierogies, 
something like that. Yeah, it's not the Polish name; it's a Russian name. Look at this guy. Uh, whatever. I I made the yeah. Polish version of the food that's in Russian called called the whatever, right? Uh, and those it are might very well be. Look, look, you just I gotta say, you're reminding me when I one of the nice things about being Princeton was that uh, the first time. The first time I learned that there was an issue about the falafel, we actually had one friend who's actually Puerto Rican, but looks like a solid Arab. <laughs> and then another friend who was like a mathematician um, from uh, sort of half his family from Syria, half from Turkey, and then another dude from Israel. And all three of them got, a, got in a fight about where hummus and the falafel come from. Uh, <laughs> and I think the fight about where the pierogi actually comes from—is it Poland? Yeah. Is it Russia? Is it Estonia? Yeah. Is it it's Russia? it's the same with it's the it, same it's with the vodka, same. Which, with, yes. which Finland, Russia, and Poland I think all claim to have invented, and maybe also the Czechs as well. I'm not sure. I'm but sure anyway, the Czechs perfected it. Yeah. Check out the check out the playlist. Uh, they're actually quite fun to make, and this video is very silly. Um, uh, and he even knowing that he has a rather strong accent, he subtitles everything. So, <laughs> dude, that guy's hamming his accent up, but it is he. He claims also, he claims yeah. a lot of people have asked him about it, and he swears on his babushka's life that he is not <laughs> hamming it that much up. <laughs> I am not hamming it up that much. He says he says, "quote This is the most comfortable way it feels for me to speak." <laughs> dude, and the thing is, if you think it's ridiculous until you turn on the news and you hear these guys now and then speaking in English, and it's like, really do speak like this. <laughs> and I think I understand why. It's different, it's a different, very different way of moving your mouth when you speak a Slavic language. Anyway. Yeah, indeed. It's, anyway, uh, it's a whole okay. other world. Yeah, thank you. And um, with that, all I can say is, uh, Peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Как сказать по-русски, мир за мир.